The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 25. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. And instead of reading a New Testament passage uh, today, we will actually read from the prophets, Isaiah chapter 60. Now, uh, this particular chapter speaks of the glories of the new covenant that is to come. And so, in a sense, it really is related quite tightly to the New Testament. Genesis 25, 1 through 18, and Isaiah chapter 60 are our readings for today. Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abedah, and Eldah. These were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Mechpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled in Ber Laharoi. These are the generations now of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Ebdel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nifish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now let us turn to Isaiah chapter 60 and read this prophecy which looks forward to the glories of the new covenant. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather all together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall be thrilled and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camel, camels shall come to you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, 
All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come, bending low to you. And all who despise you shall come, bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel." Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, I will make your overseers Peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Wow, isn't that powerful? Hope you're able to follow along with what is going on here. These wonderful promises concerning the new covenant and the consummation of it at the end of time. I will admit that there are some passages of Scripture that upon first reading seem to be of little importance when compared with other passages. And this passage that we are considering this morning in Genesis 25 verses 1 through 18 is is probably one of those. Uh, Here we learn that Abraham had children not only by Hagar and Sarah, but also a woman named Keturah. Uh, The names of Keturah's sons are listed for us in this passage. And then after that, we are told of Abraham's death. And finally, we are presented with the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's oldest son. And though this passage might seem rather unimportant on the surface when you first read it, it is in fact a very important part of the story of Genesis. For one thing, this passage ties up all the loose ends of the story of Abraham, which we have been considering all the way from the very end of chapter 11 uh, to the present text. And and two, 
It prepares us to shift our focus to Isaac and to his descendants, which we will do next week when we begin to study Genesis 25, 19. Perhaps you noticed a little remark in the middle of the text that we have read for today. Verse 11 says, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laharoi. This is preparing us to shift our attention to him, to Isaac, and to his descendants. So this passage is a transitional one. The focus is about to shift from Abraham and his offspring to Isaac and his offspring. But not only is this passage important to the story of Genesis... It is also important to the overall message of the story of Scripture. Perhaps you noted when I read it from Isaiah chapter 60, which again prophesied concerning the blessings of the new covenant and the ingrafting of the nations into the Israel of faith, that some of the peoples that were mentioned there in that Isaiah 60 passage are the descendants of Ishmael and also the sons of Keturah, which we have encountered here in Genesis 25. In other words, the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looked back upon Genesis 25 verses 1 through 18 and those genealogies there, which are difficult to pronounce, and he said, this is significant. This is very significant. And he interpreted this passage in a particular way, saying that under the new covenant, these peoples that were sent away from Abraham and Isaac, that were distinguished from Isaac, will be gathered in again and engrafted into the Israel of God and made to be His people forever and ever. It's it's a beautiful story that is being told if we would only pay attention to the narrative of Holy Scripture. The first thing that we learn in this passage is that Abraham had other sons besides Isaac and Ishmael. These sons were born to him by a third wife named Keturah. And I think this announcement is a little shocking. Wouldn't you agree? It kind of makes you step back and go, what? I've always thought of Abraham as being Sarah's husband. And yes, he made a foolish mistake earlier on in his life to take Hagar as a wife. But this was at the suggestion of Sarah, remember. Uh, The results were disastrous in some ways, right? But I've always viewed Abraham as being Sarah's wife and Isaac as being a kind of only child, with the exception of Ishmael, who was sent away. But here we learn that he had another wife named Keturah, and many sons were born to him through her. Uh, Notice that in verse 6 of our passage, both Hagar and Keturah are referred to as concubines. This means that they were legitimate wives, but they were of a lesser rank than Sarah, in Abraham's household. So here is a question that you are probably wondering. It's a question we should ask. When did Abraham take Keturah as a wife? When did that happen? Was it after Sarah's death, which has just been described to us in the Genesis narrative? Or was it before? Was it before? And honestly, it's a little bit hard to know for sure But the evidence does seem to point in the direction of Abraham having taken Keturah as a wife many years before Sarah's death. When he did so, he had three wives, I suppose. Hagar had already been put away. Sarah was his, but also Keturah. We must remember that the scriptures do not always present things in chronological order. Sometimes events are organized thematically, and I think that's the case here. 
Though Keturah is not mentioned at all until after the record of Sarah's death, this does not mean that Abraham took her to be his wife after her death. What it means is that she and her sons were not significant to the main story of Genesis until now. The focus has been upon the promise concerning a son and the son of promise named Isaac. A minor theme was the birth of the son of the bondwoman named Ishmael, his persecution of the son of promise and his being sent away. All of that was more central to the narrative of Genesis. The record of Keturah and her sons, it seems, is almost an afterthought. They are mentioned only as the Abraham story is being brought to a conclusion, but they are mentioned for a reason, as, as we will see. But before we get there, uh, to consider the reason why Keturah and her sons are mentioned at the conclusion of the Abraham uh, cycle, we should probably address the elephant in the room. A question that many of you are probably thinking is, so, so how are we to understand Abraham's polygamous practices? We know that he was polygamous, for he did take Sarah and Hagar to be his wives. So there he is already polygamous. Uh, it may even be that he had a third married to three women all at once, Sarah, his principal wife, and then two concubines. Uh, what are we to think of this uh, when we hear that Abraham had two wives besides Sarah, three in total? Was it right for Abraham to take more than one wife? Was polygamy condoned in those days but condemned today? Or is it to be condoned even today, maybe? Uh, these are important questions that we need to uh, wrestle with, I think. And the answer, to put it very directly, is that Abraham was wrong to take more than one wife, even in his day. When the scriptures tell us of his polygamous practices, it is a description of what happened, not a prescription. It is a statement of fact, not a statute to be followed. Understand that this happens often in the narrative of the Old Testament. We're told about what happened, and it doesn't always mean that what happened was right, but it did happen and so consider these three points as proof that polygamy and polyandry, which is when a woman has more than one husband, has always been a distortion of God's design for marriage. It has always been the case from the beginning of time. One, when God instituted marriage in the beginning, His design was that one man and one woman be joined together in a one flesh union, not to be severed by anything but death. This was God's design. This is the ideal. One man and one woman joined together by God and in covenant for life. And so, it is a mistake to formulate an ideal for marriage based upon the description of what Abraham or any of the other patriarchs did. Not everything that the patriarchs did was good and right. Clearly, they were flawed individuals. For example, I think you would agree with me here, it was wrong for Abraham to lie, saying only that Sarah was his sister. You agree with that, don't you? It was wrong for Abraham to lie, saying only that Sarah was his sister. How do we know that it was wrong for Abraham to lie? How do we know that? We know that it was wrong for Abraham to lie because God's law forbids lying. Uh, this is prescriptive. God's law is prescriptive. It express, it, its express purpose is to reveal what is right and what is wrong. But the Genesis narrative is only descriptive. It reveals what Abraham and others did and does not necessarily determine that which is right or wrong. The fact that Abraham lied does not make lying right, does it? We don't read the Bible that way, do we? Well, look at Abraham, our patriarch, the, the father of our faith. He lied. 
So we should be able to lie too, right? It's ridiculous, of course, because we don't, we don't determine right from wrong necessarily by the narrative. The law reveals that. Uh, so too, we don't determine God's ideal for marriage based upon what the patriarchs did. Uh, in fact, what He instituted at the time of creation establishes God's ideal for marriage. The fact of His polygamous marriages does not make bigamy right. The narrative of Genesis describes it. It does not necessarily prescribe. God's ideal for marriage is found elsewhere, specifically in the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, where it is said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two are to become one. Two, in the New Testament, it is confirmed that God's ideal for marriage is that one man and one woman be joined together by God and in covenant till death do them part. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19. And Paul, when setting forth the qualifications for officers within the church, insisted that they be the husband of one wife. This standard is not unique for elders and deacons. In other words, it is not as if Paul is saying, well, everyone else can be bigamous, but elders and deacons need to be monogamous. Of course, that's not it. He's simply saying that it must be insisted upon that officers within Christ's church live according to this ideal. But if a man is to hold office in the church, it must be true of him, is his point. He is to be a one-woman man. Three, notice that when polygamy is described in the narrative of Genesis, and this is not the only place that it appears, by the way, it is often described as having negative consequences. When Abraham heeded the advice of Sarah and took Hagar as a second wife, it was presented to us in the text as an echo of the sin of Adam. Uh, just as Adam listened to the voice of his wife and ate of the forbidden fruit, so too Abraham listened to the voice of his wife Sarah and took Hagar into his embrace. And what ensued was difficulty, pain, and sorrow. And so, no, the text here is not promoting polygamous practices. Instead, we are to look elsewhere to see God's ideal for marriage. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here that I think is an important one, though. I hope you are able to recognize in this little discussion that we have just had a distinction between two approaches to religion. There are some who are religious who think of religion as a product of man. In their view, it is man who determines what is to be believed and how religion is to be practiced. According to this view, and it's all around us, by the way, all around us, according to this view, religion naturally evolves and progresses over time. Now, I do not doubt that religion progresses and evolves over time. Of course it does. We see it all around us. Uh, uh, religious organizations evolving in their beliefs and in their practices. That cannot be denied. But according to this view, and I think it is best to call it the liberal or progressive view, religious evolution is not only expected and observed in the world, but it is in fact encouraged and even celebrated. That is one view of religion. It is the product of man it is going to naturally evolve and progress over time. It's going to get better and better, probably, I suppose they assume. But, 
What we do and what we believe, that's kind of up to man to decide. Our view is different, though. Our view is that God has revealed Himself to us. He has clearly spoken in ages past and supremely by His Son. And as we practice our religion, as we believe what we believe and do what we do, our objective is not to progress off into uncharted waters and new frontiers. But instead we are to receive and conform to that which God has revealed previously. That is our objective. That is our view of religion. We are to receive and conform to that which God has revealed previously. We do not celebrate creativity and progress as it is viewed by the progressives. But we celebrate conformity and faithfulness to the Word of God. It is our position that good and true religion progresses only when the people of God identify within themselves some deviation from God's Word and then proceed to amend their ways to bring themselves back into conformity to that which God has previously said. That's real religious progress. You understand? Here we see that we have gotten off track. We have believed things that are not taught in the page of the Holy Scriptures. We have begun to do things that the Scriptures do not prescribe. And we amend our ways. We reform according to the Word of God. That's true religious progress. This is the kind of progress in religion that is to be celebrated. And this is why we say that we are reformed. This is what we mean when we say that we are reformed. By God's grace, we believe that we were formed. And by His grace, that we will be ever reformed by the living and abiding Word of God. What does it mean to be reformed? At the very heart, it is this. We were trying to conform our lives, our beliefs, our practices to what God has said in the pages of Holy Scripture. James 1.21 comes to mind. Uh, there James exhorts the Christian saying, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I mean, that's something right there. You mean to, to follow Christ, it involves putting away a way of life? It's not up to us to decide how we should live, but we're to put away things that God forbids. And we are to receive with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is what it looks like to follow after Christ. It's a turning away from that which God has forbidden. And it's a turning to Christ. It's a receiving with meekness the implanted word so that we might believe what it says and live according to it. We are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So brothers and sisters, true and God-honoring religion can only be practiced from a heart of meekness that is willing to first receive what God has said and then to proceed to conform unto it. You say, what does that have to do with this discussion about whether or not Abraham's polygamy was appropriate? Well, I suppose if we held to the liberal and progressive view of religion we might assume that polygamy was not sinful in Abraham's day, but over time it became sinful as the religion of the Israelites evolved. But our view is that God established His ideal for marriage in the beginning and that Abraham, if indeed he took Keturah as wife before Sarah's death, certainly he did that with Hagar, he failed to conform to that, what God, that which God has revealed. In this part of his life, Abraham went the way of the world, and it was wrong of him to do so. He should not have went that way, and when he went that way, he should have repented thoroughly and never went that way again. 
And so you see that there are two views of religion, two approaches to it. And I would urge you to think about that as you look at the religious world around you. And to understand that our view is quite unique and distinct. We are reformed because we aim to be reformed in conformity to the Word of God always. I do wonder how long it will be before polygamy and polyandry become an issue within our nation. Have you ever thought of that? We've already traveled as a nation, and even within the church, a long way down the road of allowing marriage to be defined by the feelings and preferences of man. We've gone a long way down that road. What is marriage? It's whatever you want it to be, I guess, based upon your feelings, your preferences, your appetites. And it's hard for me to understand why polygamy and polyandry are still forbidden by law. It seems inconsistent. Of course, I'm not in favor of bigamous marriages. I'm only drawing attention to the inconsistency so that I might say it was foolish for us to head down this road, allowing personal preferences and the appetites and affections of men and women to determine issues of morality in the first place. It was a foolish road to go down. When seeking to understand what is right and wrong, we should have a natural distrust of that which is in the human heart. The human heart is sinful. It's bent out of shape. It is distorted. Why we would look there to determine what is right and wrong is beyond me. It is obvious that men and women sometimes have an appetite for things that are wicked. Do I need to really argue that point? Does anyone really need to be convinced of this? And so, friends... We would be wise within the church, especially, of course, but also within our nation, to base our morals not upon the desires of the human heart, but upon God's moral law, as it has been revealed dimly in nature, but most clearly in the pages of Holy Scripture. It is apparent that Abraham, our beloved father in the faith, though chosen of God and made righteous by faith in the Christ that would come from his loins, was also a man of his time, wasn't he? He was not perfect. He was not the Christ. Surely he was not the Christ. He was a flawed individual who was influenced by the cultures around him. It was very common in that day for men to take more than one wife, and this is what Abraham did. This does not excuse his behavior, but I think it does help us to understand it a bit. When judging men and their actions, we should also take into consideration the age in which they lived. It does not excuse behavior, but it does help us to understand it. It must also be recognized in this text that it was through Hagar and Keturah that the promises made to Abraham concerning a multitude of nations coming from him was fulfilled. Was it right for Abraham to take Hagar and Keturah as wives? We say no. But nevertheless, look that the Lord is still able to accomplish His purposes. These promises made to Abraham concerning a multitude of nations coming from his loins were fulfilled through them. Behold, God said to Abraham, My covenant is with you, Genesis 17.4, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. In fact, this is why his name was changed. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Not only would Abraham be the father of the nation of Israel through Isaac, the son of promise, but many nations would come from him. And when we read of the descendants of Keturah and later the descendants of Ishmael, we recognize that in and through these men, Abraham did indeed become a multitude of nations just as it was promised. Who is Abraham the father of? Well... He's the father of all who have faith in Christ. We know that on a spiritual sense. 
fleshly. He is, in a pronounced sense, the father of the nation of Israel through Isaac. We know that. But notice also that he is the father of a multitude of nations through the sons of Hagar and Keturah. Observe that these children of these concubines, Hagar and Keturah, were sent away from Isaac while he was still living. Verse 6 reads, To the sons of the concubines Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. I think it is important to notice that though these were not the sons of promise, though they were not elect of God as it pertained to his purposes for redemption, they were still given gifts. Abraham was not obligated to do this. And I think here we are reminded that God the Father does this very thing with human beings. Though they may not belong to Him through faith in Christ Jesus, though they might not be elect of Him, uh, blessed with that blessing, spiritual blessings, our God still gives good gifts to men, even those who hate Him. He causes it to rain upon the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to rise upon the just and the unjust. Our God is a good and merciful God, even to those who defile His name and who rebel against Him continuously. But here is the main point. The reason that these descendants of Keturah are listed here is to further distinguish Isaac, the son of promise, from the other sons of Abraham. This passage is all about contrast. This passage is all about honing in upon Isaac, the son of promise. That is where the narrative of Genesis is going to go. Abraham had many sons, but only one of them was the son of promise. And all of the attention is being drawn to him. The message is this, many sons were born to Abraham, but only one was the son of promise. The narrative of Genesis will soon focus upon him and upon his descendants. Indeed, the rest of the Pentateuch will tell the story of the birth of the nation of Israel, who would be in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let us now consider the death of Abraham as described in verses 7 through 11. Abraham died at the age of 175, a very old man, according to our standards. In verse 8, we read Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. The phrase, and was gathered to his people, I think is very significant. It means more than that he was buried. His burial is actually described in verses 9, in verse 9 and following there. The phrase, and he was gathered to his people, indicates that there is an afterlife, doesn't it? When Abraham died, he did not cease to exist. Abraham, after death, was gathered to his people. He continued to exist. He went into the afterlife and communed with those who had his faith, he continued to exist. Notice that it was both Isaac and Ishmael that buried Abraham. I appreciate knowing that. Ishmael was sent away years earlier. I suppose it would be possible to view him as a bitter man at that point, having been sent away from Isaac. Uh, But no, he comes and together, along with Isaac, he buries his father. It was both of them that buried their father in the cave of Michpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And so again, though Ishmael was sent away along with Hagar, his love for his father remained. 
He was there alongside Isaac to bury Abraham. The thing to notice in the account of Abraham's burial is that, though very significant in the outworking of God's purposes, he was just a man. He was just a man. He died, like all other men die. And when he died, notice that things continued to roll right along, didn't they? I think that's important to notice. God's purposes were not hindered in the least by His passing. In fact, immediately after the announcement of Abraham's passing, we read, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahoroi. God's purposes didn't skip a beat. They just continued to go on. And brothers and sisters, it is right that we remember those who have gone before us. And as we remember them, it is right that we give thanks to God for them and to celebrate whatever good it was that they accomplished to the glory of His name. When a loved one passes from this world, it is also right that we sincerely mourn their passing. But we must also be careful to not attach too much significance to any man, woman, or child, thinking that without them life will not go on. Men men and women are born and they die. And life goes on, doesn't it? Men and women are born and they die and the purposes of God are not frustrated in the least. And this is because you and I are men and we are not God. Nothing depends upon us, you see. Nothing depends upon us in the way that it depends upon God. Abraham was a very significant person in the plan of redemption and yet when he passed from the world, he was put into the grave and the fulfillment of the promises of God weren't hindered in the least bit. This is humbling, isn't it, to consider? There's something about us where we want to be significant. You know, We want to be remembered. How many men do things just so that they might be remembered by others? But I think that as a follower of Christ, we should have this humility where we say, Who am I but a servant of Christ? Let me, let me live for the glory of God. Let me die, be put into the grave, and forgotten. Shouldn't that be our attitude? Wouldn't that be far better? so that God received the glory. We need to be very careful, brothers and sisters, to never attach to any man, woman, or child the kind of significance that belongs only to God. That, friends, would be idolatrous. Man is man and God is God. And indeed, some men and women play very significant roles in the accomplishment of God's purposes, but the truth remains. All glory belongs to God. Lastly, Let us briefly consider the generations of Ishmael as mentioned in verses 12 through 18. You would do well at this point to remember that the book of Genesis is divided up by this reoccurring phrase, these are the generations of, etc., etc., or something similar to that. Uh, That is how the book is structured. It is These lines are marked off by the phrase, these are the generations of. After the prologue of Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, there are ten sections to Genesis which are, in fact, family histories. Each of these sections are family histories. First, we encountered the family history of the heavens and earth. Do you remember that? Who was it that came forth from heaven and earth? Adam did. Eve did. The God of heaven 
formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. After that, the family history of Noah and then of Noah's sons. Next, we encountered the family histories of Shem and then Terah, that is the father of Abraham. That section we have been considering for some time now. And now we come to the family history of Ishmael with the words, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to him. The thing to be noticed here is that the family of history of Ishmael is covered in only seven verses. Only seven verses. The family history of Isaac, on the other hand, which begins in 2519, takes up ten and a half chapters of the book of Genesis. In fact, the family history of Terah, Abraham's father, took up chapters 12 all the way through to uh, chapter 25. We have come to it now. So that's a very long and detailed family history given. Isaac, a very long and detailed family history is given. But when it comes to Ishmael, only seven verses are devoted to his family history. A very succinct genealogy is presented and we move on. What is happening here? The thing that is happening here is that the book of Genesis is making a distinction between the elect and non-elect of God. The righteous line and the unrighteous line. The line through which the Messiah would come and the line through which ordinary nations would descend. A distinction is being made and what is being highlighted in the book of Genesis is is God's chosen people. Abraham, Isaac, and a bit later, Jacob. This pattern will be observed again in the family history of Isaac. Isaac, as you know, would have two sons, their names Esau and Jacob. And again, we see that the second born would be the one through whom the Lord would fulfill His promises. The principle of election is put forth here, and there's a theme developing. It's it's the one that you would not expect that becomes the one through whom God fulfills His promises. Who was Abraham's firstborn son? Who was it? It was Ishmael. Ishmael was his firstborn son. But he was an illegitimate son, a son according to the flesh, not the son of promise, the second born son. Isaac would be the son of promise. Esau and Jacob. Esau emerges from his mother's womb first. They were twins, remember? Jacob had a hold of his heel. But who is the son of promise? Who is the elect one? It is Jacob. Not what you would expect, but this is the way our God works. He chooses the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He works contrary to the ways of the world, you see. Saul was tall and a powerful king. Israel wanted him, but God said, No, David is my chosen one, the little scrawny one over there, who doesn't look like a king, the shepherd boy. He is mine. This is how the Lord works. He chooses the weak and foolish things in the world to shame the wise. Not all who descended from Abraham are elect of the Lord, therefore. Do you see that in the narrative? Not all who descended from Abraham are elect of the Lord, therefore. And this is exactly what Paul the Apostle highlights in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 9, verse 6, he's talking about election. And there he writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and here he quotes scripture, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, and this is Paul interpreting scripture for us, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. That's backwards, isn't it? But this was God's decree. As it is written, and I quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul says, Is there injustice on God's part that He determined this prior to their birth even, before they had done anything good or evil? And His response is quite clear, by no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the conclusion that Paul makes. So then, it depends, what depends? Election depends, not on human will, or exertion. Can it get any more clear, brothers and sisters? This election of God depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 6 through 16. What we are seeing in the Genesis narrative is the outworking of God's purpose of election. Isaac was elect of God, Ishmael was not. That point is made quite clearly in the narrative with the abbreviated genealogy of Ishmael and the expanded genealogy of first Terah and then Isaac. But we should remember that promises were made concerning Ishmael too. They were not promises that had to do with the accomplishment of redemption, but promises were made concerning him. Then the Lord was confronting Abraham concerning the boy and having to send him away, and he said, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Genesis 21, 13. And the genealogy of Ishmael shows that the Lord was faithful to keep his promises concerning Ishmael too. Indeed, nations came from him. By the way, how many tribes or clans are listed here for us? Twelve. Huh. I wonder what's going on here. Twelve tribes or clans came from Ishmael. Those of you who know your Bible know that twelve tribes or clans will eventually come from Isaac, too, through Jacob and his sons. So, twelve and twelve. And then we have this little remark at the end of the passage that uh, Ishmael settled over and against all his brethren or kinsmen. Uh, This sets the stage for the conflict that will uh, develop Uh, between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites in time. There's conflict. They're they're to be contrasted, the twelve tribes of Ishmael, with the twelve tribes of Israel, as they will soon come into existence. They're to be contrasted. There is God's elect line and non-elect line. Son of promise, son of the bondwoman. We're to see that God is accomplishing His purposes here by calling a people out to Himself from amongst the nations. Abraham our forefather, also Isaac, the son of promise. It is apparent, therefore, that Ishmael was blessed on account of him being the firstborn son of Abraham. He was blessed. But he was not to be the conduit of blessing to the nations as Isaac was. Isaac would be the conduit of blessing to the nations. Ishmael was a pool of blessing, wasn't he? He was blessed of the Lord in a way. He was a pool of blessing, though, not a river. The Messiah would come through Isaac and Israel, not Ishmael and the nations that descended from him. Friends, though it may not be immediately clear, 
the gospel is present in Genesis 25. The gospel is here. Though the son of Hagar and the sons of Keturah were sent away from Isaac, the elect son of promise, notice this, it was for their good and the good of their descendants. You say, well, how so? It just sounds sad to me that these children had to be sent away from their father. That just sounds all sad, and indeed, in a sense, it was. But it was for their good, and it was especially for the good of their descendants. Why? Isaac was set apart from them, not for his sake alone, but so that through him the promises of God concerning a Savior for all nations might be fulfilled. Through Isaac, the nation of Israel would come, and through Israel, the Messiah would come into the world. He is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins, not only of Israel, but of the world. And it is through faith in Him that all the nations of the earth will be reconciled to God. Again, I hope that you notice that in that Isaiah passage that was read at the beginning of the sermon, the prophet spoke of the glories of the covenant of grace. The prophet spoke of the day when the nations would come to see the glory of the Lord and to worship His most holy name. And perhaps you notice that some of the sons of Ishmael and some of the sons of Keturah were mentioned there. The prophet spoke of the day when the nations would join themselves to Israel, saying, A multitude of camels shall come and cover you. The young camels of Midian and of Ephah, all those of Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Niboeth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. This is Old Covenant temple language being used to describe what would be accomplished through the coming of the Christ. Through Him, the nations of the earth would be gathered to God, reconciled to Him through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Read the New Testament Scriptures and see that this is precisely what happened when the Christ finally arose from with Israel. The nations have flocked to Him. The Gentiles have been grafted into Israel. Jew and Gentile have been made one through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ Jesus our Lord, for He Himself is our peace, Paul says, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that was established here in Genesis. That dividing wall of hostility between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites has been broken down, for example, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, let us be found clinging to Christ by faith. And let us also be faithful to proclaim His good news locally and to the ends of the earth until He returns. For that is His purpose for us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we have heard Your Word preached this morning. We thank You for its message, for it is a glorious message. We see clearly, Lord, how it is that your plan of redemption unfolded slowly over time, beginning in seed form, but it is fully blossomed, Lord. And we give you thanks that we now are able to look back upon Christ, His life, death, burial, resurrection, and to see your purposes displayed before us. Lord, your redemption is beautiful. Help us to celebrate the fact that we have been joined to Christ, that we have been reconciled to you if we have faith in Him. Lord, also compel us to speak to others about this salvation. 
Lord, we live in a world that is so broken and sin-sick, and we say that Christ is the solution. He is the only answer to our sins. May we proclaim Him faithfully here and to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.